0: Everyone and welcome to another Scotsway podcast and today I'm joined by writer and academic Liam McIlvaney, all the way from New Zealand. Hello Liam. Hello Alistair,
1: thanks very much for having me on.
0: Oh it's a pleasure. I was thinking um, that the, well, we're going to talk about your latest novel, the heretic, but the last time we spoke was at an event about the Quaker. What a lot has gone on since then. <laughs> it has well. indeed a lot of water under the bridge since then. A lot then. of water under the bridge. But it might be worth mentioning The Quaker first, as the heretic is a sequel to it. And it, what success the Quaker was a huge
1: success. Was that a surprise to you? Well, it's always a surprise when the you know anyone takes a remote interest in the in the books, I think. Um you know, you, you beaver away, you write away in obscurity, and you kind of hope that. Uh, people might find what you've written interesting but I think I think a lot of writers I certainly you know almost everything I finish I think well that's you know the worst thing anyone not just I have ever written but anyone has ever written and uh, I will be exposed for the charlatan I am so I've always got a of course probably one of these times that will actually happen and it will be you know uh, objectively the worst thing that anyone has, has ever written but yeah so I didn't have any particular uh, hopes for the book. I, I just was glad to finish it and get it off the the desk. Really, so it was quite a surprise that it, it did reasonably well. So that was quite quite gratifying. It
0: seemed to be a, a, a crime novel that a lot of people who didn't normally read crime novels really got into, which I thought was interesting.
1: Right. Oh, well, that's that is interesting. I mean, it's uh, you know every crime writer says the same thing, but you know. When I started out, I didn't really, with my first novel back in the day, I didn't really realise that I was writing a crime novel. I know that's what every crime novelist says, but it was kind of true in my case. I was just sort of noodling away. And at one point, I I sort of realised, wait a minute, this is a crime novel. I better better work out what a crime novel actually is and does and and proceed accordingly. Um, So I suppose I've always had, I mean, I I read a lot of, um, you know, I read a lot of crime novels, but I read a lot of of sort of literary fiction as well. So I, I suppose I would I would maybe see myself as kind of operating on that, on that sort of border, if you like. I've also wondered if one of the reasons it was so successful
0: was the, it was so closely based on the Bible, John murders, and they seem to still hold a kind of a fascination for people in Scotland. And in fact, since the Quaker, I've thought, I think it's
1: almost reignited an interest in it. Yeah well I think that's very true alistair and I think um you know that's why I was I was slightly nervous about the, the latest book which doesn't have that kind of true crime background because it does give you a bit of a, a bit of a hook you know I've I've never been able to come up with uh, the kind of holy grail for the crime writer the kind the of high concept thriller my brain just doesn't seem to work in in that fashion but Having something based on a real life case gives you almost a, the same sort of effect that people think, oh, this is based on the Bible John murders, I might I might give this a go. So I suppose you get a kind of wee artificial boost to some extent by, you know, from, from that, uh, that circumstance. Um, so I think that undoubtedly was part of the interest that uh, the book generated was that people are still after all these years mm. fascinated with the Bible John Story as of course was I, you know, which was which was why I wrote the book in the first place.
0: Um, I don't know if you've seen it, but there was a two part documentary the BBC have done about the Bible. Job. I haven't
1: managed to. to I, I will watch that, but I've, uh, yeah, so it made a bit of a stir online. So I'm looking forward to. But, but I haven't worked to haven't worked out how you watch uh, iPlayer, you know, illegally in, in New Zealand yet. So I need to wait <laughs> till somebody sticks it on YouTube and uh, catch up with it there. But it did make me think that
0: the the success of The Quaker and how widely that was discussed, I wonder if that played a part in people maybe wanting to know more about the original, because certainly it was a name I knew um, from growing up, but almost like the boogeyman. It it didn't go into details particularly. And then Mm. reading your uh, novel, The Quaker, it made me think, oh, I really need, you know, want to know more about this and the effect it had on Glasgow in particular.
1: Well, I suppose that was the angle that interested me, Alistair, was, you know, how it impinged on people at the time and indeed later. I mean, I was I was born in 1969, the year of the the final Bible John killings. And, uh, you know, it was still, you know, when I was growing up in, in Ayrshire, it was, you know, you would still open the, the Daily Record or whatever. You know, every couple of years, there would be some feature on... Bible, John. They just couldn't sort of leave it alone. So it would be slightly exaggerating to say that it sort of shadowed your childhood and growing up in the west of Scotland. But it was. It was always there. It was always a kind of point of reference and something that, uh, as you say, it was always you know you know it was never got into to detail, but you know it was always there in the background. So just something that I was quite interested to explore through the medium of the novel. And of course, I fictionalized mm-hmm. the, the the true case in the book so it's not it's not dealing actually with the Bible John murders it's dealing with them in a kind of fictionalized fashion
0: so now we've got uh, the heretic were you
1: always going to write a sequel was that uh, your intention no absolutely not uh, so i wrote the quaker very much as a standalone yeah and it wasn't until my editor at harper collins uh, Julia wisdom said this guy's quite an interesting protagonist you've got here it might be worth bringing this character back um so being being the kind of biddable dutiful fellow i am i thought okay i'll, I'll go and do that uh, but of course it's one of these things that if you had conceived it as a series to begin with you know you would have you know you would have done things differently you would have started from here as, as it were so um so I send him off at the end of the of the Quaker, I send my protagonist Duncan McCormick off to the Met in London, he's kind of got to get out of dodge a bit. He's not the most popular uh, officer on the, the Glasgow force. Um, so I was then faced with the situation, well, do I embark on a novel set in 1970s London? And I, uh, you know, after after a few minutes thought, I realised that that probably wasn't within my competence. So uh, I've waited for a few years. So it's now 1975, and the heretic, and he's back in Glasgow. So I've given him a bit of a, a bit of a breather with the Met, and now he's he's back in Glasgow. And were you
0: um, happy to re-engage with these characters? I certainly was as a reader. It's one of these things that when you've got a character or a characters as strong as that, you think. Oh, yeah we're in safe hands here you know we want to see what happens to them and what has happened to them
1: well I think yeah I mean uh you know Duncan McCormick I was certainly happy to write more about Duncan McCormick um and he's one of these you know as I've, I've often said that there's a great uh, I think it's Andre Gide who says that the way to to sort of inhabit a character and bring a character alive is to write about a character that is some of your experience but you know, the other elements that are, are not in your experience so that you, you kind of approach it from maybe a, a slightly oblique angle and you have to do some imaginative um, work to to try to think your way into that, that character. So, that, so that's very much the case with Duncan McCormick with his sort of Highland background. Um, he's also gay, which, which I, I'm not. So there were a couple of elements of his character that, um, you know, I, I had to to do a bit of work to try and, and sort of inhabit with anything like uh, any degree of sort of authenticity or credibility. And I quite enjoy that sort of work and not just writing characters who are sort of who map quite closely onto your own experience, but you've got a bit of work to do. So I was very happy to, to sort of return to Duncan McCormick. Um, I also, with, with this book, I've sort of brought in, I suppose, a, a new kind of sidekick character if you like, um, DS Liz Nicol. And I I enjoyed that. With the first book, I think I had wrongly assumed that the Glasgow CID in the late 1960s would have been a kind of exclusively male preserve. And that actually wasn't the case. And I was very fortunate to uh, get to know a woman called Nanette Pollock, who was one of the pioneering Glasgow uh, female detectives in that era and went on, in fact, to head up the, the CID in Glasgow. So uh, she was extremely patient and very helpful in uh, fielding all my inane queries about what it was like to be a woman in the in the police force at, at that period. So a lot of her experience and anecdotes have gone into that character of, of Liz Nichols. So I very much enjoyed sort of developing A kind of new character as as part of the the ensemble, if you like. So yeah, that's been that's been quite uh, quite fun.
0: And how far do you go into the kind of research of things like police procedural and uh, and and other aspects that maybe, as you say, you're not familiar with? Is it something that you actually dig quite deep into?
1: I I mean, yes and no. I mean, I am I'm, I'm quite a big believer in you know it's fiction. Mm. Kind of making stuff up is the gig,
0: yeah.
1: Uh, so I, I don't get too hung up on, you know, the the, the rigorous verisimilitude of you know making sure that uh, everything is as it as it should be. But at the same time, in crime fiction, as you you're no doubt aware, Alistair, you know, a certain degree of that sort of authenticity is kind of requisite for the job. You know, people will write to you and say well, I was enjoying a novel, but of course, it all fell down on page 142 when such and such happened. So, so even just to, to sort of deflect uh, those sorts of emails, it's, it's quite useful to try and get things right. So that's partly a question of, you know, doing research in libraries. I mean, when I'm back over in Scotland, I'm, I'm very often ensconced in the Mitchell Library. Uh, and in fact, very often Alan Parks, you know, the great uh, Glasgow crime writer is sort of sitting at the next machine going through the, the microfilm of the, of the Glasgow Herald for the same, the same sort of period. But there's only so much you can glean from those sorts of sources. I think you really need to have, um, you know, individuals who were actually present and, and active at the time in the sort of relevant occupations who you can you can basically plague with your with your questions as you as you proceed so I was very fortunate that I had Nanette Pollock in in that respect and I've also um my cousin David Markovani is a retired firearms instructor with Strathclyde police so I've you know over the course of the books I've been able to to use his expertise quite a bit. And that, that's one of these situations when the um, time difference between New Zealand and Scotland really works in your favor. I mean, very often I would be, before I went to bed, I would, you know, email my cousin and say, Davy, how does this work? And then I'd go up in the morning and he'd have written, you know, 3,000 words complete with pictures and hyperlinks and, and so on. So, so that was, uh, it's very useful to have people you can you can sort of annoy on that basis. Put to work while you sleep that's great exactly perfect yeah in fact I was uh I was I think it must have been for I think it was for the second book I was uh I contacted my cousin see I was you know, planning to mention him in the acknowledgements and he said actually could you could you not do that and I thought at first it was you know he was he was sort of concerned about you know being seen to have sort of divulged please seekers, but it wasn't that at all it was the fact that at the end of the second book was a sort of, um, I suppose, a kind of Mexican standoff situation in, in a pub, and I had completely gone against his description of how it would play out just for just for dramatic effect, and so he was horrified. So he was, he was basically just embarrassed that his pals would see it and and think that he had actually okayed, you know, he'd given the given the stamp of approval to this particular scene. Oh dear, getting the feedback
0: saying that would never happen. What were you talking about? That they- exactly. Yeah. Um, another balance uh, that you strike, I think, is between attitudes and actions of the '70s in this case, um, but you know, make them okay for a, a modern day reader. Is that something that right. you're kind of aware of?
1: <coughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I suppose you're, you're you're trying to sort of stay true as far as you as far as you can to the kind of idiom and I. Uh, some of the the mentality of the of the era, of course, all that's a bit guesswork. I mean, I'm still, you know, the book I'm writing just now, the I'm, I'm working on the third book, which is set in 1981. And what I'm enjoying about that is that I'm now coming into a period where I actually have personal memories of it, and so I can start to rely on those. But for the first two books, yeah, you're still inevitably trying to reconstruct that to some extent. So um yeah i mean i suppose the i mean the elements of you know some some of the sort of uh attitudes in within the police towards crimes of violence against women and so on at, at that period and indeed you know i'm, I'm sure today are, are still not what they what they might be so yeah i mean i suppose you're, you're trying to convey some of those um attitudes um but through i suppose a kind of more modern sensibility. There's also of course the issue of sexuality there in those uh, earlier books in that you know it's, it's still illegal to be a homosexual man at this period in, in Scotland. So in fact it won't be until the third book in 1981 that uh, Duncan McCormick will actually you know not be breaking the law by uh, just who, who he loves. So um, so those elements I suppose are also bring in some of the attitudes of the of the period, but you know you, you also use those to kind of
0: drive the narrative as well, the reasons for leaving perhaps, and the reasons for being concerned you know when other people suddenly arrive you, you've got um all of those things that you spoke about you use to kind of a uh, uh, tell the story itself
1: yeah, I mean, I think that's true i mean, I think um. I suppose one of the things that that the sort of sexuality dimension gives you is a sense of your protagonist is operating at a, something of a remove from his colleagues that there's an element of, of distance and sort of inevitable secrecy there. And as, as well as, I suppose, trying to reflect the realities of the situation, that's also quite useful dramatically mm-hmm. uh, to have a character who, a, a protagonist who feels to some extent a kind of a, outsider that often generates some interesting tensions uh, just just dramatically in the book
0: and he is really an outsider I do love the tensions that's just there from other people in the police you know you've really got this outsider character there
1: yeah and very often you know I mean that's obviously a very long tradition in crime fiction of the kind of outsider sort of maverick uh, detective but maybe this is a sort of slightly different slant on it uh, you know using his his sort of um, on this in a, in a slightly different way, hopefully.
0: just strikes me that, you know, The Heretic certainly is a book you could just pick up and read without having read The Quaker, but were you, did you have thoughts of kind of satisfying people who had already, you know, read The Quaker and maybe brought expectations, or can you not do
1: that? Yeah, I think you can. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I did in The Quaker was... Um, I suppose one of the sort of ethical dilemmas that you have as a crime writer, particularly when you're writing about violence against women, as I, as I was in the in the Quaker, is that you've you've got that very familiar scenario of, you know, the the kind of violated female body, and then all the agency lying with the male detectives to then go off and and investigate, and that kind of I suppose was the scenario, you know, that, that uh, effectively was there just through the material that I was working with the Bible John Murders. So one of the things that I tried to do in the, in the Quaker was to, um, you know, I've, I've got three chapters in the Quaker that are narrated from beyond the grave, as it were, by the murdered women. And these were chapters where I just tried to I suppose to give a sense of the interior life and, you know, the, the backstory of these women so that they didn't function simply as kind of plot points. But there was one female character in in The Quaker um, who doesn't get that sort of depth. Uh, And uh, so she she was almost kind of, you know, left over if you like from that uh, that earlier narrative. So one of the things I tried to do in The Heretic is to give a bit of the backstory of that character and sort of, you know, tie up those loose ends as it were. So there are, for people who've read The Quaker, there are elements that and the heretic that relate back to the actual plot of the Quaker. But I think, you know, with with a, a series, uh, with a crime fiction series, there's a, there's a sense in which all the books are self-contained, you know yeah. I mean? Crime fiction tends to focus on um, the case, you know, the, the particular incident that is being investigated and will be resolved. So there is something slightly self-contained about a crime novel and you, you can, uh, Although it's it's um, useful to uh, and can be a sort of rich experience to to read a crime series in its entirety, I think and just in the nature of the genre, it's quite straightforward to pick up. Yeah. you know, whatever you are, and just just enjoy the book for what it is.
0: Perhaps more so than in other genres.
1: I think so. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was th- thinking about this the other day in terms of um, I suppose character trajectories and it it did strike me that um, you know if you're writing a standalone I'm also in the middle of a standalone just now and you do feel the pressure in a standalone to I suppose develop a real character arc with your protagonist and have some sort of measurable change over the course of the of the narrative whereas in a in a a crime series you don't really need to do that I mean Hercule Poirot is Hercule Poirot wherever in the Series you you happen to to dip in, um, so yeah, I mean you don't you don't quite need to go into that depth in terms of character when you're you're writing a series, I think.
0: Yeah, I think if you've got a strong cast, so to speak, then you can you know put them into most situations and people will connect
1: with them. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so it's that it's that kind of ensemble thing, which I suppose does go back to I mean, if you think of the the sort of police procedural as a genre. Um, I know there are various you know, writers who are credited with sort of inaugurating it, but I think you know, most people would agree that the the sort of most important writer, I suppose, in, in sort of formulating the police procedures on those early years was Edmund Bain uh, in the 50s, with the 87 Precinct novels. And as the title of the series indicates, these are ensemble books they're not really about, I mean Steve Carelli is probably the, the closest to a, a kind of protagonist, but they are very much ensemble pieces and they kind of feed into obviously Hill Street Blues and you know right up to things like The Wire, where uh, it is very much, um, your interest is sort of dissipated among a range of characters rather than, rather than focused on this one individual. Mm-hmm
0: you made me smile talking about Ed McBain. It's been a while since I've read one, but I used to devour them. They're such good. Yeah,
1: I, I mean, there are some of them, but there are, you know, they, they are kind of marked by some of the attitudes of the time and so yeah. on. But uh, there's some terrific, just the, the sort of police procedural um, dimension and, and the way he sort of uses that kind of fictionalised New York and sort of represents the sort of team element of, of police work. I think these these were all pretty crucial developments in the genre.
0: Um, So when I finished writing The Heretic as I was reading it I thought this is a great Glasgow novel and uh, what I meant by that is it seems to give a whole picture or a a more full picture than perhaps normally happens. Was that something that you were really keen to do you know because it moves from east to west, north to south, different uh, areas in terms of class and you know all sorts of things?
1: suppose so yeah I mean I think that's one of the strengths of the crime novel I mean you can people can write fantastic novels based on a very restricted milieu but it can be quite fun in the crime novel to range as widely as you can sort of geographically and socially and of course that uh, you know the fact that you're following a case and the various leads that arise you know allows you to you know, have that sort of variety and proceed in different directions. I suppose I've also, I mean, I'm, I've probably read more widely than is healthy in the sort of history of the Glasgow novel. I, I, at one stage, I was planning to write a monograph on uh, on the Glasgow novel, and I taught, I taught a course at Aberdeen for a decade or so on the Glasgow novel. Um, so I, I've read more obscure Glasgow novels than most people, let, let's put it that way. Um, but that's actually, that's something that you notice in, in the Glasgow novel historically is that very broad sort of social sweep. And it goes right back to, I mean, Defoe, Daniel Defoe, the first novelist to write about Glasgow really, not, not in a novel, but in his tour of Great Britain. Um, there's an int- I always thought that there's an interesting sort of duality in how Defoe describes the city. You know, on the one hand, he, he focuses in the tour on you know Glasgow as a city of business and he talks about the prosperity that's been brought by the union and the elegance of the streets and so on um, and on the other hand at the same time you know in, in his role as a kind of English spy at the time of the negotiations for the union a lot of his journalism at that period is bemoaning the sort of um, the Glasgow rabble, as he calls it, the kind of underclass who rioting against the proposed union and and so on. So that kind of duality, you know, the the city of business and the Glasgow rabble um, is kind of sort of baked into representations of the city from the first. And you can kind of trace those lines going through some of the great Victorian novels of, of Glasgow, you know, David Pays, Lucy the factory girl, or The Beggar's Benison by George Mills. Um, So, I suppose I've always had a sense that that's how you write a Glasgow novel when you try to encompass the city, you know, in all its complexity, in terms of of class and and geography and so on. I suppose the other thing with that, that that's the city of business dimension, is the fact that a lot of that wealth that the city is built on derives from very dubious sources. You know, people think this is a sort of new thing that we've just discovered, but a lot of these earlier Glasgow novels, I mean, David Pay's Lucy the Factory Girl, for instance, has um, a great line where one of the characters says, There's not a stone in your filthy town that is not cemented with the blood of a Negro. So, Glasgow novelists were were very well aware of the dubious source of much of the city's wealth, you know, at, at quite an early period. So, that's obviously quite a um, a useful vein for a crime writer probing the, the sort of um, you know the the, the sort of uh, unsavoury elements behind that respectable facade. That's kind of what crime fiction does much of the time.
0: I think that's really interesting because the writers themselves might have been writing that way, but hardly anyone, in general circumstances, has read those novels. You know, a lot of people. If you were here to say to someone in the twentieth century. Name a Glasgow novel, it would have been probably no mean city right up to the 70s, you know?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's I suppose that I mean that great uh, I've just been rereading Lanark, mm-hmm. Alistair Gray's great book. Um, not not least because I'm I'm writing a book set in 1981 and 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 Lanark appeared in, in 1981. But of course that that famous passage in in Lanark where he talks about the sort of paucity of uh, previous representations of the city and no one has imagined living here uh, and I suppose what you realize is you know I mean that was a kind of rhetorical flourish that uh, you know made some sense in the, in the context of that novel but in fact you know there actually is quite a long tradition of, of novelists writing about the city and e- even if as you say they're not uh, particularly well known you know that, that tradition is still there ready to be discovered.
0: Yeah I, I totally agree but I think even in the libraries that Alistair you know loved so much it would have been difficult to find those those novels you know they really were um, uh, well not taken off the shelves but perhaps never on them in the first place.
1: Yes in- indeed and I suppose I mean the work of someone like Moira Burgess um, in sort of writing her bibliography of the Glasgow novel and, and her study of of the Glasgow novel, and she's done fantastic work in terms of trying to bring some of that material back into notice but it would be quite useful I think if we had a a publisher who was willing to take on the task of of republishing some of those those almost lost Glasgow novels.
0: Absolutely and I think you can tell in The Heretic that uh, you've read so widely on them because as I said it seems to me it gives a wider picture than most do in a single Novel. Some might, you know, in their next book, they move to different areas, but you really have gone, you know, from kind of Nick to Springburn, you know, and, and it just really struck me that uh, most people wouldn't expect that, I think, in one novel. They like could maybe piece them together, you know, piece different ones together, if you suggested. Uh, right. Yeah, that, that, that was something that, that kind of jumped for me, and it's interesting to hear that you've, you've got that real depth of knowledge that, you know, you know, clearly. yeah,
1: I suppose part, part of the thing too Alistair is that it's a ludicrously big book, The Heretic, so it's kind of two, it's kind of two books and some, I sometimes feel as if I should have written two books and, uh, and instead of squandering 130,000 words on on this one book, so it's certainly the biggest book I've written and I did worry, it was one of these situations where, you know, the strands of the plot, were so complicated that in order just to to sort of um, you know resolve things and and get to the end of the book it just sort of kept expanding so I felt as if I was in a kind of maze trying frantically to sort of write my way to the to the exit and I finally got there but it took me 130,000 words to to do it so that that may be why there's you know there's quite a large uh, geographical scope in the in the book is that I did I was working in that larger sort of canvas.
0: Well, from a practical point of view, I think that's really interesting as well, because it is a kind of epic. I've got a copy here for people that are watching the video version, and it is a hefty tome. And is that something because often writers are asked, oh, could you cut that down to 80,000 words or whatever Mm. it might be? Um, Is there a change going on? I was in a, a few bookshops for the first time in a long time recently and did notice that Bigger books seem to be making their way back.
1: Yeah, I don't know. It's a bit of a paradox. I really enjoy short books. And I, I don't, I mean, I'm currently reading Lonesome Dove um, and by McMurtry, which is, a you know, 800-odd pages. But I, I don't often read books of that size. Yeah. I much prefer, you know, sort of the kind of Claire Keegan end of the, the spectrum sort of nice gem-like short books. So it was quite... Um, quite a surprise to me that I, I found myself sort of embarked uh, <laughs> in the process of writing quite a big book. Yeah, I mean, I think I mean my I think my contract actually said you know ninety thousand words is is what you will you will submit. So I think they might have been if I if I tried to come in substantially under that, I think that might have been a problem. But it doesn't seem to be so much of an issue to go a little bit yeah. beyond that limit.
0: Uh, yeah, it's interesting to say that, because I did think, wow, this is a real, and did you ever think, did you ever
1: think of splitting it into two? Or was, I mean, it, it doesn't feel like it could have been. I don't think so, no, I don't think it, it could have been, as you say, Alistair, but uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose what I'm doing now is, is uh, with the next book, I suppose, trying to keep a firmer grip on the kind of proportions to make sure that uh, I don't sort of lose the run of myself, as the Irish would say again. Yeah. So now that,
0: uh, because I was going to ask you if there's going to be another one, but you've you've said that there is, and now that you're kind of into the character and it's not linked to any kind of real-life things that people might know about, does that kind of free you up to think, yeah, I know these people, I know the character, and I can take it where I want?
1: I suppose it does. I mean, I suppose what anchors it now is just the the year in which it's set because I'm I'm jumping quite yeah I'm taking quite big leaps in terms of chronology so I've gone from 69 to 75 and this next one's 81 so that kind of generates you know the the interest for me in in trying to I mean as I say I'm quite excited about about this new one because it's a period that although I'm doing some research around about it it's also a period that I remember as a boy much more clearly so um and you've also got, of course, that your character is aging in real time, so you have to sort of take account of those mm-hmm. sort of how he moves through different life stages and so on. So I suppose that that kind of keeps your interest up as a, a writer, and, and hopefully as a reader in due course.
0: As someone who remembers the fashion choices of the early eighties all too well, I can't wait to see. You.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, yes. No, I'm sure I'll have good fun uh, with that.
0: But also jumping that. Up- um, far in time also means that the city itself will have changed substantially from the 70, from the mid-70s to the early 80s. It really did. I mean, perhaps not as much as it did from the mid-80s to the 90s, but still there was substantial change.
1: Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. So it's the challenge as well as to, to try to reflect that. I mean, I suppose, um, I think I'm conceiving the series possibly ending in 1990 with the the year that, that perhaps represents, you know, the the most, uh, I suppose the kind of tipping point or, or the, the, the cusp between that sort of new sandblasted, you know, Syria culture and, and the sort of older Glasgow. And I, and I think, I mean, you, you've seen a lot of crime fiction recently in Scotland, focused on that Glasgow in that earlier period with Denise Minor and Alan Parks and so on. I think I think part of the reason for that is, um, you know, that crime fiction likes to probe behind the the kind of glitzy facade to to sort of uncover the less savoury realities. And, and to some extent, with Glasgow, that's that's a kind of chronological thing. That you know, not to say that there aren't um, you know problems and and crimes and so on transpiring in, in Glasgow today, but but from a crime writer's perspective, I think you do get that sense that, you know, pushing back to that earlier period is, is pushing back beyond that kind of transformation in the city's image to, to a kind of darker Glasgow that might be in some respects more sort of noir. Yes. Um, so maybe that, you know, for that reason, that 1990 would be a, a sensible place to kind of put the series to bed, not least because Duncan McCormick by that stage will be sort of getting on a bit himself, yeah. as will I, indeed. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I think
0: the idea of Glasgow as a classic city of for writing noir, although I think uh, Louise Welsh has managed to keep it going in her
1: new novel as well. But well, I'm I'm, I, desperate, I'm desperate to read that. I, I taught for many years. Uh, I taught uh, the cutting room in uh, various papers I, I teach here. And so I'm, I'm really keen to see how Rilke is doing after all this time.
0: That's exactly how I felt about it. It's like meeting a, a kind of old, slightly disreputable friend.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, talking of friends, there's an appearance. Now, I don't know if you want to see anything of this at all, but there's an appearance in the book by a character who lovers of Scottish crime may have found
1: elsewhere. Is that? Do you want to keep that secret? No, no. So, uh, no, that's uh, Harry McCoy, yeah. uh, who's the hero of, of Alan Parks's, Well, that's just a wee sort of joke that we've had uh, going, as I say, I would often, you know, when I was back, I would often see Alan Parks sort of working away on on sort of similar, uh, a a similar period. And we just kind of got to know each other. And, uh, you know, when I I was back for six months in 2018, and I saw quite a lot of Alan during that that period. And we also realised that our respective protagonists Actually live round the corner from each other. So Harry McCoy lives in Gardner Street oh. and uh, and Duncan McCormick's in Cairb Drive. So, you know, it was quite easy to sort of engineer a meeting with these with these characters. So he had, I think he first of all had Duncan McCormick appear in in one of his books. And then I sort of retaliated with, with this one. So it's quite nice, I think, to just have that slight, that sense of the kind of expanded universe of uh, of Glasgow crime novels in, in this period. It was really good because I was kind of past it for it,
0: clicked, and I went back and went, all right, on. Well, let's do it. hang on. <laughs> yeah. a it's a great idea to think you might bump into them both having a pint in tenants Bar.
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So we just like that, uh, you know, that idea and uh, we might run with it, yeah.
0: Brilliant. And you mentioned that you're writing a standalone, or have you written a standalone?
1: Well, um, it, it would classic me. I've been sort of laid by a couple of other projects, but I'm, I'm about 55,000 words into a standalone, which is, I suppose, a kind of psychological thriller. i um, actually set in fairly of all places, which is the Wee Village that I was based in, uh, Wee Village just outside Largs and the Irshire Coast there when I was back in 2018. Um, so yeah, a bit. I suppose it' a bit kind of midsummer murders. You know, the village of Fairley will will now become you know the a hotbed of of crime and corruption. Uh, so that's been quite quite good fun to to write, and it's been quite good fun sort of leaving the historical stuff alone for a bit and going back into a more contemporary period. Um, so ho- I mean, my hope is um, that I can finish that in in time to have it published next year, which would be, I mean, that, that's what that's what crime writers, ordinary crime writers, people who actually do the job properly, that's what they do as a matter of course, they publish a novel every year, Uh, and I've never managed that yet, so I'm kind of, I think I might actually manage, I'm assuming that anyone wants to publish the thing, I think I actually might manage books in consecutive years, which would be, I would then feel like, wait a minute, this is is proper crime writing stuff.
0: And before we um, started recording, we were speaking about you know, New Zealand beginning to open its borders and things like that. Does that mean that you'll be able to take the heretic to book events and uh, festivals and all that kind of thing? Well,
1: yeah, I mean, I won't won't be back uh, this year, unfortunately, but I um, have some research leave from my job at university scheduled for the second half of, of next year. So we're hoping to come back with the family again, as we did in 2018 for six months. In the second half of next year, of course, you know things could be all up in the air again, depending on on how the pandemic goes. But uh, I'm really looking forward to to that. We had such a fantastic time. I Actually, surprised myself at how much I enjoyed being back in 2018. I used to think I used to kid myself on that. Oh, I don't really miss Scotland at all. Then I came back for six months and I loved it. It was absolutely fantastic. So I mean, I very much enjoy living in New Zealand as well. But um, I'm really keen to get back and in 2023 if that turns out to be feasible well it would be great to see you if you did but it's been lovely to see you today thanks so much for taking the time to have a chat thanks very much for having me Alistair great pleasure to to talk to you as ever and yeah hopefully we'll get a pint at some stage if I manage to make it
0: back next year oh that would be good well Liam all the best with The Heretic Uh, it's a fantastic book I'm sure it'll do very very well great stuff thanks very much Alistair we'll see you again See you soon and we'll be back with someone else very soon indeed.